It's a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done before. A far better resting place I go to than I've ever known. Is that a poem? Mm. Something Spot was trying to tell me on my birthday. Welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and I'm on my own today. This is a solo episode. In fact, the first of three, I'm going to be covering Star Trek 2, 3, and 4, and I'll do those all on my own. Now, the initial plan had been that the three of us would get together and do all three of these films as one podcast, that on a Saturday we'd watch Star Trek 2 and 3, and then we, you know, they'd come back the next day and we would do Star Trek 4, and then we would record one long podcast, probably you know two, two and a half hours long, and we would dis- discuss all three films. But that just didn't work out. It, it's really hard to justify Heather coming all the way down from Edmonton just to do one podcast episode when normally it would be four. And of course, she's since left the podcast, and we miss her. Uh, and even for Amy, it was, it was difficult. The summer is busy for him, well, for both of them, really. Uh, that's what happens when you have a wife and kids, or in Heather's case, a husband and kids, a uh, kid. Yeah, so I figured, let me do them on my own. It's very much the case for me, as it was with Transformers the movie, that I have a lot invested in these films. I'm a lifelong Trekkie. And so I figured, you know, Transformers worked out pretty well. So what the heck? Let me, you know, let me jump into that. So I'm going to do this much the same as I did uh, the Transformers one, which is, you know, I'll talk for just a bit. And you know, I suppose I could spend a lot of time talking about the philosophy of Star Trek and why I'm attracted to it and all that. But I'd actually rather that just come out as I watch the film. So I'll give you the sort of the, the preamble and then I'll just watch the film and pause it every time it occurs to me to say something. Um, obviously, you've noticed if you listen to the Transformers episode that you don't hear those pauses. I delete them. Uh, these episodes take a long time to do. A normal episode takes between five and six hours. Uh, Transformers took me 10 hours of editing, though I did kind of, I did kind of go nuts on the sound clips. I'll, I promise not to do quite so much here. So yeah. Anyway, today's episode is Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and it premiered on the 4th of June 1982, and it was directed by Nicholas Meyer. He was a newcomer to Star Trek. It was written by Harv Bennett and Jack B. Sowards, and it's kind of interesting because uh, Harv Bennett and Jack Sowards, I think Jack Sowards was sort of the screenplay experts. That's why he was brought on board uh, with Harv Bennett, who also produced this film uh, and several others. Uh, he did something smart. He watched all 79 episodes of the original series. And when he came across Space Seed, which is where we're introduced to Khan Noonien Singh, and we learn about the eugenics wars of the 1990s. Uh, remember that this was written in the 1960s and the 90s were the far future. Uh, he saw that and he thought, hey, let's go with that. And that's where the wrath of Khan came from. But the fact that he watched the entire series is kind of remarkable to me because it means that he wanted to make sure he got it right. 
um, as opposed to J.J. Abrams, who I'm convinced saw the odd episode here and there and just said, screw it, I'm doing my own thing, which is why those J.J. Abrams movies, Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, which is kind of a parallel of this film, and Star Trek Beyond is why they're such bad films. Anyway, it stars William Shatner, of course, as Kirk, Leonard Nimoy as Spock, DeForest Kelly as uh, McCoy, James Duhan as Scotty, uh, Walter Koenig as Chekhov, George Takai as Sulu, Nichelle Nichols as Uhura, Ricardo Montalban reprising his role as Khan Noonien Singh, uh, Bibi Bish, Bish as Carol Marcus, the great actor Merritt Butrick, who has since passed on, he actually passed away in the late 90s, he played uh, David uh, Marcus, and Kirstie Alley, who you know we, we all... We all know who she is. Uh, she started, uh, this was her very first film, when she played Savick, the first of two actresses to play the role. Uh, this movie was made on a budget of $11.2 million, and it made $78.9 million, so this was obviously a big hit. This is still considered the very best of the Star Trek films, and I'm not sure I agree. It's certainly one of the best. Uh, Star Trek 2, 3, and 4, which constitute a narrative arc, they are the best three, b- by far. I'm a big fan of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Most aren't. Uh, Star Trek V is, is abysmal. Star Trek VI is very good, but I found it got too clever for itself. The next-gen movies are kind of a you know hit and miss. Generations is better than I think people give it credit for. First Contact is, I don't think, as good as people think it is. Insurrection was... It was an episode, frankly. It was, it was just a... It, you get the impression it was a one- or two-part episode they made into a movie. And Nemesis was a freaking disaster. But this is what happens, of course, when you have Stuart Baird as a director and he keeps screaming on the set, I don't care about Star Trek. Well, great. Why are you doing it? Why did you take the job? Whereas you look at, say, Harv Bennett who said, okay, I don't know Star Trek, but I'm going to sit down and I'm going to figure this out. And and good for him because it shows. So I have no idea when I first saw this. Uh, if it came out in June of 82, I would have been seven. Uh, I know I didn't see it in the theaters. Star Trek Three was the first one I did see in the theaters and, and when I record the Star Trek Three uh, podcast, I'll talk about how I first became aware of the film. You know, I, I probably saw it on like Super Channel or, or whatever, but I guess I, I suppose I should talk about where Star Trek comes into my life. Like most kids who grew up in the 70s and 80s, Star Wars was my thing. Of course it was. It was flashy and, and cool, and the special effects were awesome, and the action was great, and the characters were easy to understand. You know, Luke is you know, the dedicated farm boy. Han is the rogue with the heart of gold. The princess is the serious one. You know, the old, we have the old wizard and the dark knight and all this sort of stuff. Uh, it's, it's very, you know, remember Star Wars isn't science fiction. It's fantasy with a thin coat of science fiction on top. Fantasy does a really good job of using, making use of archetypes and te- and telling very, I, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but telling very simple stories, telling archetypal stories. Uh, his fantasy is very much sort of our modern version of myth-making. And so, of course, as a, as a young kid, Star Wars was the thing. But at some point, I became aware of Star Trek, almost certainly through the show itself. And I realized there was a lot more intellectual heft to it. There was a lot more going on in terms of ideas. And that appealed to me. I was a very intellectual kid, which, you know, it's probably why I wasn't all that popular. I liked ideas more than I liked action. I, I've always found action kind of boring. I mean, that's not true. Okay, there's some really great action. I really like the action of John Wick. Uh, 
you know, some Michael Bay movies, I don't mind the action in a little bit, but for the most part, I'd rather watch a movie about ideals than, than just machine guns. Uh, you know, the low point of that is, uh, yesterday, don't ask me why, I must have been terribly bored, I watched uh, this awful movie called London Has Fallen, which, please save yourself two hours, I will take the hit for you, don't watch this film. But it's like the exact opposite, there's, you know, political maneuvering, kind of, sort of, like, it's meant to be a thriller, but with a lot of action, just as Star Trek II is, but where Star Trek II is a wonderfully crafted film with interesting characters, and it's well acted, and the dialogue is interesting, London has fallen, is, London has fallen, it's just garbage. <laughs> so... But back to Star Trek. As much as I enjoyed, you know, sort of the action in in Star Trek, I much preferred the ideas. The, the Star Trek philosophy really appealed to me. Roddenberry's vision of a future where humans have sort of figured it out, uh, I really enjoyed. My understanding is that Star Trek II, which he didn't really have a part in, he'd sort of, he'd not really been part of Star Trek for a long time. He had a lot of input into Star Trek The Motion Picture, but not a lot into two, and he felt it was overly violent, which by today's standards, I mean, you look at Star Trek II, it's it's not a violent picture at all. Um, in, in places, it, it it's shockingly violent, but for the most part, it's it's a slow burn. It's about thinking people doing doing their best with what's been presented to them. You know, it's not madcap. It's not frenetic. Uh, it's not bullet a minute sort of thing or a bullet a second. It's... It's a measured film. But I think first got to talk very briefly about Star Trek The Motion Picture. So Star Trek The Original Series was cancelled three times after every season. And uh, thanks to the, you know, to the efforts of people like Joe Trimble, the original, one of the original hardcore Trekkies, who launched a, uh, a letter-writing campaign, they managed to save it. Uh, by the third season, Roddenberry had left as part of a negotiating tactic. Well, it happens. Um, and the series kind of died on the vine. They tried to revive it with a, a series called Star Trek Phase Two. Uh, that didn't happen because it was meant to be the uh, one of sort of the big flagship shows of a fourth network. This is back when in the States you had ABC, NBC, and CBS. Paramount wanted to start its own network, and they figured, well, Star Trek Two, or sorry, Star Trek had become exceptionally popular in syndication, sort of reruns. So let's make a new series. And there's a great uh, book by, I think it was Judith and Garfield, Reeves Stevens. And they, they talk about um, Star Trek Phase 2, the second season, which would have our second season, seri- second series. Um, and, you know, it just, it never happened. A lot of the, the plots from that became next-gen episodes, including Devil's Due. That was a, a Phase 2 plot. And they sort of moved into Star Trek The Motion Picture because the one thing that Star Wars had shown is that there was an appetite for high-budget, serious science fiction, not the thing from another world. Though, by the way, that film's actually very good. Star Trek The Motion Picture, which came out in 79, was very much a 70s film. It was very contemplative. It was very slow. People der- you know, sort of deride it and call it Star Trek The Motionless Picture. I don't think that's fair. I think it's a fabulous film. It's a film of ideas. It was conceived in an era before Star Wars, but it was executed afterwards. You know, if, this, if, if there had never been a Star Wars, Star Trek The Motion Picture, I think, would be hailed as this great film. But after Star Wars, it was just, it was viewed as a poor cousin, which is unfortunate. I think it's a better film. You know, it, it presents us with, uh, you know, very much leading into Star Trek 2, so that's why I'm going to talk about it. Uh, it presents us with this, how would I put it? It presents us it presents us with characters who have moved on. You know, the Enterprise's five-year mission has ended. The ship itself has been completely rebuilt. Uh, it's now an, what we call a, a, re, a, star, a Constitution-class refit. Kirk has been promoted to Admiral. 
and he's miserable. Spock has left Starfleet to undergo the Kolinar discipline, which is meant to purge all emotion, all all emotion from the Vulcan mind, which of course is a bigger problem for him because he's half human. So it's a little harder for him to to manage his emotions. Remember, uh, Vulcans feel emotions. It's just that they're really good at hiding them. But you know, if you've got a different psychological makeup uh, because you're you know, oh, I don't know, half human, uh, go figure. The standard uh, Vulcan methods aren't going to work all that well. So he gets pretty extreme and tries to achieve Kolinar, which he fails and he winds up back in Starfleet. Uh, McCoy has left the service, but he's drafted back into it because of the plot of the motion picture. Uh, the other characters like Chekhov and Sulu and, and Scotty and Uhura, they've stayed with the Enterprise. They've, you know, they've sort of moved on to their careers, but they've, they've stayed where they are. Um, you know, Chekhov has moved to sort of security and tactical. He's no longer a navigator. Um, but what you're seeing is some characters who are pretty miserable. You know, Kirk is very much a broken person. He's very unhappy being behind a desk. Uh, you know, Spock is very confused. McCoy's not happy about where he is, but, you know, he sort of steps up really quickly. Um, Nurse Chapel, who we only ever see on and off, she's now a doctor. Uh, Grace Lee Whitney, who played yeoman janice randy yeoman's like a secretary or personal assistant uh, she'd left the series in, in the i think the first season she'd quite tragically wound up among other things addicted to drugs and alcohol and, and things got very bad for her i'm very pleased that her life turned around and uh, gene roddenberry was very insistent that she be in star trek the motion picture very briefly but as the transporter chief and then we see her in star trek 3 and i believe star trek 4 again and later on, she was used, they show her on, in Star Trek VI, they show her uh, serving on the Excelsior under Captain Sulu. And, of course, in a Voyager episode that flashes back to that era, we see her there. Um, but she's not, I don't think she's in this film, granted. So, let's watch the movie and see what we see. Okay, so the very first thing we see is a sort of a star field, and we get the music. And it starts off with this sort of the standard Star Trek fanfare, but then it moves into another piece of music, which is very iconic for the 80s because it's James Horner. You would recognize James Horner's music in an instant if you're a child of the 80s. He has some very standard flourishes, in his music, uh, which was actually noted uh, by the Oral Knots, who did this great uh, series of videos. One of them was called the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger Kill Count. And they and one of the guys there spent some time talking about James Horner's music. I refer you to that. Uh, they talked about it much, more, much better than I did. But this is sort of the Star Trek II theme music. And of course, we get the, you know, we get the, uh, the title, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. It is worth noting that Calling this The Wrath of Khan forced George Lucas to change the name of his third Star Wars film from Revenge of the Jedi to Return of the Jedi because it would have seemed kind of silly, you know, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Wars, Revenge of the Jedi, so he changed it. You know, listening to the credits here, I can't help but be reminded just how wonderful the soundtrack is. It's been a long time since I've listen to the soundtrack and i don't think i've seen this movie in four or five years at this point which is shocking considering i'm a trekkie but uh if you have the chance to find this soundtrack i absolutely recommend it as a young man i i the sort of music i listened to tended to be classical music but also movie soundtracks and this was 
almost certainly one of my favorites after well after Transformers the movie, but still the music here is wonderful. You know, it just occurs to me now after all these decades of seeing it, that immediately after the credits you see this title card in the twenty third century dot dot dot, and I thought, well, no shit, everyone knows Star Trek takes place in that era in the twenty third century. Obviously, next gen, which would come a few years later, is in the twenty fourth. But it occurs to me, it's because the bad guys from the 1990s, he's from the 20th century. And I think it's meant to remind us, like, this is the far future. And look at sort of how the monstrosity of our era has come back to haunt us. So immediately we're presented with the bridge of the Enterprise and a pretty cool, at least for its day, uh, graphic of the Enterprise. And we hear a woman's voice narrating. Captain's log, stardate 8130.3. Starship Enterprise on training mission to Gamma Hydra. Of course, it's Kirstie Alley as, um, you know, she's captain of the, you know, it's a captain's log and she's captain of the Enterprise and we see Spock's face and they're on a training mission. And of course, this is what become famous as the Kobayashi Maru test, which is a test in Starfleet that is is meant to be unwinnable. And the idea is that how does a command stream officer, you know, in training, how does he or she deal with a no-win scenario. I assume you're loitering around here to learn what efficiency rating I plan to give your cadets. I am understandably curious. They destroyed the simulator room and you with it. The Kobayashi Maru scenario frequently wreaks havoc with students and equipment. As I recall, you took the test three times yourself. Your final solution was, shall we say, unique. It had the virtue of never having been tried. And at this point, we're also introduced to the new uniforms. The uniforms in Star Trek The Motion Picture were like pajamas. They have an interesting look. It's kind of funny. Um, They they weren't very good uniforms, but these new uniforms have a very naval look to them. The ones with the red jackets and different color uh, undershirts, depending on what division you were, like Command was white and so forth. They're they're still my favorite Starfleet uniforms. And I'm noticing as I have this on pause, that by the bridge is a sign that says no smoking at any time on the bridge, which I think is kind of funny because in all of Star Trek, I don't think I've ever seen any human smoke. But uh, one thing Nicholas Meyer was going for uh, because he sort of darkened the bridge, uh, the art direction from the original, from Star Trek The Motion Picture, as he wanted to create a more closed-in, naval, almost submarine feel. He wanted this to feel like a submarine movie, and I think it works really well. But I think he tried to make it look more naval, and the no-smoking thing, I imagine, is something he'd seen on naval ships. So, you know, we're introduced to the captain of the ship, and we can see from her uniform she's just a lieutenant, and it's Savick, it's this young girl. Uh, of course, there's no suggestion yet that they're just in a training simulator. As far as you know, she's, well, she's on the bridge of the Enterprise. So, of course, the way the Kobayashi Maru test works is that on a training cruise, the ship, the Kobayashi Maru, contacts the training vessel in question and says, we've struck a mine, we've drifted into Klingon territory, help, help, help. Knowing full well that the expectation will be the quote-unquote captain will take the ship into the Klingon neutral zone, which they're not allowed in, and they'll try to rescue the Kobayashi Maru. Of course, they get in there, the ship is nowhere to be seen, and there are three Klingon vessels, which I can't help but notice when we see them is really just a stolen shot from Star Trek The Motion Picture. But okay. Now, besides the thematic and character elements of the Kobayashi Maru test and what it represents... I don't believe this was a fair test of my command abilities. And why not? Because there was no way to win. A no-win situation is the possibility every commander may face. Has that never occurred to you? No, sir. It is not. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? This is a great visual way for the 
for the director, Nicholas Meyer, to show us what red alert on this Enterprise looks like. What it looks like when the shields go up. The the commands that are given. This will be important later when we encounter Khan. So it, it preps us in advance for this is what a normal red alert should look like. And of course, all hell breaks loose. The Klingons start firing on the Enterprise. And it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, this is a training exercise, and yet there are actual explosions on these consoles and people are dying. You know, Sulu is killed. He's thrown out of his chair. Nichelle Nichols, sorry, Uhura, her console blows up and she's dead in her seat. Everyone sort of dies. And, you know, clearly these are all senior officers who are participating in a training exercise and they've been told sort of to, to act it out. You know, to make this a more visceral thing instead of simply lying back and saying, oh, gosh darn, I am dead. They make it seem real. And of course, this is the first time we've seen this test. The audience has no idea that this is just a simulator in, in you know, somewhere in Starfleet uh, Academy, which is in uh, San Francisco. And of course, the minute, quote unquote, Captain Savick gives the order to abandon ship, Kirk he orders them to shut it down and he makes one of the coolest entrances ever with a backlight behind him. It's, 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 it's a really good entrance. This is the first time we realize that in fact, Spock is now a captain. And we know this because of course, Kirk calls him that. So, you know, good for Spock. He's got his own ship. And of course this conversation between Savick and Admiral Kirk is very much the underpinning of this entire episode. This is the, the Kobayashi Maru scene is, is an excellent way to introduce the audience to the themes and the look and the feel of this movie. I think it's what makes it so good. In Star Trek The Motion Picture, this sort of playful friendship, the the good-natured ribbing, the sort of relaxed friendship that Kirk and Spock have, which was absent in Star Trek The Motion Picture, mostly because Spock was going through so much, it's back. And this is another, one of the new, I, I suppose it's not one of the newer things, but it's sort of one of the more clarified things, is that you know, Harv Bennett, having watched all the episodes of the original series, almost certainly noted that Kirk had a lot of, or a few, antiques in his in his his cabin on the Enterprise. Though I think, frankly, it was just the set dressers uh, setting it up with whatever they had around. But here they've decided that he has a fondness for antiques, and so for his birthday he's been given, uh, uh, by Spock, he's been given a book. You know, and this whole love of antiques, we certainly see that when we see Kirk's apartment, which is just filled with antiques, old sailing ships, and like what is that? Six uh, matchlock pistols, and he's got at least, uh, you know, at least one telescope. And I notice that there <laughs> there are more sailing ships and all sorts of naval stuff. It's actually a pretty gorgeous apartment. It's very '80s futuristic, but it's still pretty impressive. And he gets to look over San Francisco Bay. Of course, you know, being an being an admiral half its privileges, and so of course it's you know, now it's McCoy bringing uh, gifts for for Kirk on his birthday. Though I'll note they never actually say which birthday it is. Though at this point we can we could probably guess that he's in his uh, late forties. He was I think in the second season or the third season of Star of the original Star Trek. He'd said he was thirty five. You know, it's noted that Kirk is the youngest captain in Starfleet history. So if he was in his mid thirties when he got his command, by this point he'd be in his mid to late forties as an admiral, which is still, by the way, pretty impressive. And I, I like the uh, I like the gifts. Very typical of McCoy, who's a, uh, a connoisseur of alcohol. He brings uh, Romulan ale, but also eyeglasses, because Kirk is allergic to Retinax 5, which would presumably, you know, Retinax, Retina, I guess. Retinax 5 would presumably clear up his, his eye problems, but he's allergic to it. So they've given him these old-style reading glasses, which I don't think really anyone wears anymore, like the sort of half 
lens half moon glasses. Anyway, reading glasses. You know, the one thing about this scene is that it's clear Kirk is very depressed. He's not happy with life. Damn it, Jim, what the hell is the matter with you? Other people have birthdays. Why are we treating yours like a funeral? Bones, I don't want to be lectured. What the hell do you want? You know, in Star Trek The Motion Picture, a big deal is made that he sort of shoehorns his way back into command of the Enterprise over sort of pushing himself over Captain um, Willard Decker, uh, Willard Decker, who was the captain of the ship, had been there for its refit, most notably the son of Commodore Decker, who dies of the Doomsday Machine, uh, original series episode. You know, and Kirk, he's, he's sort of desperate to get back into the captain's chair. But one of the themes of Star Trek The Motion Picture is that Kirk doesn't know the ship, and he's out of he's out of practice being a captain on the frontier and you know he's constantly making mistakes here we see he's sort of settled into being you know into being an admiral he clearly has a part to play at starfleet academy of some sort we know he's going to supervise a training cruise aboard the enterprise which again is a training vessel because it's old uh, under captain spock and you know he's kirk is not happy one of the, the sort of the great bits of character arc that we see of Kirk in Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 is, and it's really a sort of an extension of the motion picture, is that he's not happy with life. He is not happy not being the Kirk that you and I would remember from the series. Watching this for the first time in a while, and and of course being forced to analyze it, I'm starting to notice parallels to other movies that we've covered on this podcast. And in this particular case, with this particular line, you know, get back your your command before you become part of this collection. I'm reminded of General Bache from Taps. And Raimi and I spent a lot of time talking about how he lived in a museum of himself. If you looked at his his office, it was all sort of his glory days and how he had very little left. He sort of surrounded himself with better days, knowing that it was never going to get better. And, you know, of course, things go terribly wrong for him and he, he passes away. But here you have someone who... You know, he's in his mid-40s, and in the 23rd century, that should be no big deal. But he's been put out to pasture. Um, it's been, it, I think it was suggested in a couple of the novelizations, which of course are just, they're mostly just garbage, was that he was, and, and they're not canon, by the way, but the suggestion that he had been made an admiral to get him out of the way, that Kirk had been too cavalier for too long, and they didn't want him in the captain's seat, but how do you punish a guy who has accomplished as much as Kirk has? So they promote him out of the way. Having been in the military myself... I know this is the case. I encountered a captain in my unit. I swear to God, he came with us, came to us with a, uh, a, a you know, a personnel file uh, that practically had a post-it note that said, "Please take him." Uh, it, it was very clear this guy had been promoted, you know, into a rank and a position where he would not harm anyone because he hadn't done anything stupid. But he was kind of mediocre. And in Kirk's case, I really think what sort of happened here. Uh, I do like the suggestion again, non-canon from some writer or another over the years who suggested that Kirk was promoted to Admiral to get him out of the way because they wanted more predictable captains. Uh, They didn't need heroes. But clearly this is eaten away at Kirk. And now we move on to another ship, and we learn that Pavel Chekhov has moved on. He's become a, a first officer. That's pretty impressive considering he was a wee little ensign in the original show. He has since uh, sort of skipped over senior, more senior officers who were his friends, like Uhura and and Sulu, and certainly uh, Commander Scott, who's you know chief engineer. I guess that's a pretty impressive position. But he is a first officer aboard the Reliant, which is a smaller ship, Miranda-class vessel. It looks a little bit like the Enterprise. It's got the same sort of saucer section, but there's no secondary 
no secondary hull. It's definitely a very cool looking ship. Well, what I love right away is that they're sort of scanning this this planet, Seti Alpha 6. We have no idea what it's for, other than it's for Project Genesis. We don't know what that is. Apparently, they have to find a lifeless planet, but one scanner has found one, you know, some. So there's some small fluctuation. Maybe it's life, maybe it's not. And I love how they set up Carol Marcus as kind of a ball buster. Like, she's very no-nonsense. She's very serious. All right. Get on the comp, Victor, Dr. Marcus. Aye, sir. Maybe it's something we can transplant. Hmm? You know what she'll say. Let me get this straight. Something you can transplant? Yes, doctor. Something you can transplant? It's an interesting exchange, and it's a good pass-off where we're going to learn, the, you know, we get introduced to new characters in a way that tells us right away what their relationship is, and it tells us right away what sort of person she is. What I also love is when they show the space station that uh, Marcus is on, it's actually just the old Starfleet Command administrative space station from Star Trek The Motion Picture turned upside down. Which, I mean, if you think about it, it realistically makes sense. Why wouldn't you use a standard design? And up or down in space means nothing. But for a model, they just sort of grabbed what they did. Remember, this is long before CG. This is all uh, all practical models. Yeah, and then we're introduced to David Marcus, who is Carol's son, and it's clear he's not a fan of the military. What is it? Every time we have dealings with Starfleet, I get nervous. We are dealing with something that could be perverted into a dreadful weapon. Uh He's one. You know, David Marcus is one of the most interesting characters I think the Star Trek movies ever introduced. It's a shame we don't get to see more of him. Only in Star Trek two and three. Obviously, I'm. If, if you're listening to these films, I'm not. Um, I'm not spoiling anything. And if if you haven't seen them, press pause. Go watch these movies. We're going to lose David Marcus in in Star Trek three. He's murdered, um, and, and it's really a shame because. First off, Merritt Buttrick is a. Gr- I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He was a wonderful actor. He was also in a like, first season episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation before he tragically died of AIDS. Uh, he's a he's a great actor, and the character is interesting because this is one of the first times we've encountered someone other than a bozo like Harry Mudd who doesn't like Starfleet. You know, he refers to them expressly as the military. What I do like is that you know we establish immediately there's a uh, there's a a relationship between Kirk. And, and Carol Marcus. Remember that overgrown boy scout you used to hang around with? That's exactly the kind of yes, man. Yes, kiddo. Jim Kirk was many things, but he was never a boy scout. It's a little ham-handed, but it works. But the fact that right off the bat, um, David knows who Kirk is. Of course he does. I, I imagine Kirk was quite famous at that point uh, for his exploits, you know, as captain of the Enterprise during the five-year mission. Uh, but he views him as military. And of course, you know the one thing in Star Trek they push over and over again, and of course the clo- you know the, the further on the, the the franchise moves, the more we realize, you know, Starfleet is not meant to be a purely military entity the way we would understand the military now. It's about exploration and science, and sometimes they're forced to be military. But of course they use military ranks and military discipline, and you know everyone's armed and everyone knows how to use a phaser and all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting that a scientist like uh, Doctor Marcus, well, both of them, Carol and David. Uh, they view the they view Starfleet purely as a military 
I suppose it makes sense for if you're purely a scientist, you know, and scientists moving in a very free-form, unstructured way in terms of their relationships with each other, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that they view Starfleet, even if it is about exploration and science, where they use military structures to organize themselves. I'm not surprised they view it purely as military. It's also worth noting that this movie, you know, written in the early 1980s, uh, comes after the tumultuous 60s and 70s, where something like half the world's scientists were engaged in military research. And this was, Carl Sagan certainly complained about this, and many activists currently complained about that. Um, you know, so this is, I guess, meant to be sort of a reflection of that. So Chekhov and his captain Terrell beam down to SETI Alpha 6, which is this, this desert wasteland. I really like that their tracking device is an old style beep, 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 beep. Because it does raise the tension as you get closer to whatever it is they're looking for. It's a it's a it's a clever movie trick, and of course they do eventually spot what look like cargo carriers to them. They they you know, they, they discover there is something I won't say I guess I'll say man made, but you know we don't know it could be alien. But we we found a an artificial structure, and them exploring the inside of this cargo carrier, which clearly is you know is is a living space. We see pots and pans and whatnot. Uh, we see books and all that sort of stuff. I'm very much reminded of the scarier moments from Alien and Aliens, where they're walking into sort of an, you know, I, I think especially Aliens, where they go into the Wayland Utani atmosphere processing administrative area, and you know, where is everyone? This is clearly lived in, and there's sort of that tension there. I sometimes wonder whether Cameron looked at the scene and got inspiration from it. You know, the one thing they see is that there's some sort of container with something moving under the sand. Uh, obviously, you know, we're going to learn a lot about, you know, the, the SETI, the Tau SETI eels later. And then Chekhov, you know, comes across a belt, belt buckle that says SS Botany Bay. And that's where it sort of dawns on him. Oh my God, we're in a bad place. So here's, I guess, where I'm going to take a moment and explain who Khan is. Because my guess is more people listening to this will have seen the movies than have seen the original series episode Space Seed, or at least you've, forgo- you've forgotten about it. So in the, I think it was the second season maybe it was the first season, I don't actually remember, uh, the Enterprise comes across this old space vessel from the 1990s. Okay, remember, this was made in the 1960s. There was an assumption that by, by the 1990s, you know, we'd, we'd have a moon colony and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, we're not there, but whatever. Uh, and the point is, is that they come across a ship called the Botany Bay, uh, a reference to Australia, obviously, which started as a prison colony. And what they come across is a group of people in suspended animation of uh, you know, male and female of various nationalities, the leader of whom is a man named Khan Noonien Singh, who is from India, played by a Latino named Ricardo Montalban, but beautifully so. And what we'll learn is that these are refugees from something called the Eugenics War. In the 1990s, in Star Trek's timeline, a group of genetically enhanced individuals seized control of various countries, uh, including India. Name? Khan, as we know him today. Name? Khan Nunian Singh. From 1992 through 1996, absolute ruler of more than a quarter of your world. From Asia through the Middle East. The last of the tyrants to be overthrown. 
the most powerful of these was Khan Noonien Singh, who was a brutal dictator. He killed a lot of people. He waged war. He at one point controlled something like a quarter of the earth. In the end, they were beaten in something called the eugenics wars. And for whatever reason, these people, instead of simply being imprisoned or executed or whatever... 72, alive. Group of people dating back to the 1990s. Discovery of some importance, Mr. Spark. There are a great many unanswered questions about those years. Strange, violent period in your history. I find no record whatsoever of an SS Botany Bay. Captain, the DY-100 class vessel was designed for interplanetary travel only. With simple nuclear-powered engines, star travel was considered impractical at that time. It was 10,000 to one against their making it to another star system. And why no record of the trip? Botany Bay. That was the name of a penal colony on the shores of Australia, wasn't it? They took that name for their vessel. If you're suggesting this was a penal deportation vessel, you've arrived at a totally illogical conclusion. Oh? Your Earth was on the verge of a dark ages. Whole populations were being bombed out of existence. A group of criminals could have been dealt with far more efficiently than wasting one of their most advanced spaceships. Yes. So much for my theory. I'm still waiting to hear yours. Even a theory requires some facts, Captain. Uh, the survivors were piled into ships. Though, of course, now that I think about it, I'm not sure whether Khan and his people escaped or whether they were sent here. Forgive my curiosity, Mr. Khan, but my officers are anxious to know more about your extraordinary journey. And how you managed to keep it out of the history books. Adventure, Captain, adventure. There was little else left on Earth. But they were put into the Botany Bay and sent out into space. Now that I think about it, I think maybe they escaped. The Enterprise comes across them, and of course, very quickly we realize that you know Khan is exceptionally intelligent, but he's also very ambitious and he's very ruthless. It doesn't take long before he has seduced uh, Marla McGivers or McGivers, I don't remember which her name is. She's a, an officer aboard the Enterprise who sort of, I think she's an historian, and she's sort of immediately sort of caught under uh, Khan's romantic spell. Uh, it's very 60s, whatever you take it, um, you know, take it as you will. Uh, Khan tries to take over the Enterprise. He fails, uh, as we learn as Khan also has an incredible ego and an incredible temper. And in the end, the decision is that they're going to put uh, Khan and his people, and MacGyver's goes, you know, chooses to go with them because otherwise she's going to be, uh, you know, court-martialed for assisting with a you know, with the seizing of the ship, they, they are set down on this planet to sort of conquer on their own. They're put on a planet called Seti Alpha 5. Now, this is Seti Alpha 6. So what the hell is Botany Bay doing? One thing I should notice is that I'm pretty sure this was first season, now that I think about it, because um, it's funny that Chekhov notices, and he freaks out about, you know, being the Botany Bay. He knows who they are. Chekhov as a character was not on the show. <laughs> when Space Seed was done. That's how, now that I think about it, now that I, that's how I know that Space Seed is season one, because Chekhov doesn't arrive to season two. And here's another great entrance, of course, that, you know, we sort of flip back to the bridge of the Reliant trying to contact uh, Terrell and Chekhov, and they can't. Uh, then we go back to the Botany Bay, where this group of people who are all, you know, amazingly in good shape, they're all Know, perfect looking they're all muscular despite having lived in clearly bad conditions and Khan gets his entrance and he you know sort of 
removes one of his gloves and then the you know the the face mask and it's Oh, that's right. Nope. <laughs> I was wrong. It's not that Chekhov had uh, learned about Khan after arriving. I never forget the face, Mr. Chekhov. Oops, continuity error. Which is funny when you consider that Harv Bennett had just watched the show, you know, the, the Space Seed episode when he wrote the script. So I'm thinking he hoped that uh, Star Trek fans would not remember that Chekhov and Khan had never met. Whatever, we'll live with it. Maybe we'll we'll just assume that uh, you know Chekhov was on the night shift and you know dealt with Khan off camera during Space Seed. One thing that I think they worked hard was to give Khan a voice. He spoke very differently than you know Kirk and crew did. He was much more formal, much more poetic, and they've continued this on here that despite the fact that he's always very polite and you know or at least when he's not freaking out but he's he's at his most menacing when he's at his most well-spoken on earth 200 years ago i was a prince with power over millions so this is actually the first time we have a definite timeline from the end of the series to where this movie is. It has been, you know, 15 years since Space Seed. And I think Space Seed, you know, first season episode would have been like year two of the five-year mission. So, you know, it's been over, a, you know, it's been like 12, 13 years since Kirk was promoted out of the captain's chair. And of course, here's where we're going to learn, you know, the confrontation between Khan and Chekhov and Captain Terrell. You know, we, we learn why it is that why it is that Khan is here where they were not expected to be. Never told you how Admiral Kirk sent 70 of us into exile in this barren sand heap with only the contents of this cargo base to sustain us. You lie! And City Alpha 5 there was life! A fair chance! This is City Alpha 5! Seti Alpha 6 exploded six months after we were left here. The shock shifted the orbit of this planet and everything was laid waste. Admiral Kirk never bothered to check on our progress. So they're, you know, at this point they're sort of introduced to the Seti Alpha. I think they refer to it later as a Seti Alpha eel. It's this terrifying looking creature with, with jaws uh, that sort of snarls and they keep one of them it's one of the few well he says it's the only remaining indigenous life form on SETI Alpha 5 and it's terrifying the one thing I'll note here is the music again by James Horner who I'm pretty sure did Aliens as well he really knows how to create tension and fear but in an unknown way like you you don't know what it is it's not a goat you know, this isn't a horror movie so it's not ghosts and boogeymen it's not fantasy, so it's no dragons coming at you. It's the, the sort of the science fiction fear of it could be anything. And the music gives that sort of, gives that feel of sort of the, the fear of there's something out there in the deep, dark emptiness, and we don't know what it is. And, and, and James Horner is really good at that. 
And, you know, in addition to the sound effects of the creature itself, he does a great job of, of, of help, you know, Nicholas Meyer does a great job of knowing immediately we should fear everything on this planet. And the eel is part of that because, you know, the eel has these sort of layers of armor on it and Khan takes from between the layers of armor, one of the babies and he explains that this killed 20 of his people. It burrows into the inner ear, wraps itself around this, I think, the spinal cord. It makes you very open to suggestion and eventually drives you mad and kills you. Uh, it killed, you know, 20 of his people, including his wife. So now we know what's happened to Marlon MacGyvers or MacGyvers, whatever. And you start to understand why he is as angry and as bitter as he is to watch his people die like that. Like, if you think about it, the first time, the first maybe even the first few times, they wouldn't have understood. Why are you being so compliant? Why are you so calm and and obedient? I don't get it. And then suddenly you're driven mad, and then you die, and it maybe it you know sort of bores its way out of your ear, which is what we see happen later with um, with Chekhov. It's terrifying. And so he takes two of these babies and puts one in each of the helmets of Chekhov and Terrell, and we watch it sort of move across their face and then bore into the ear. It's it's terrifying. It's a little grotesque. It's way more intense and and, and scary than this, the, the original series ever allowed itself to be. And frankly, with very few exceptions, that even the other series allowed themselves to be. Even so, it's very subtle. The one thing I'll give Star Trek credit for is that it very rarely jumps the shark, uh, which is an old term. You can look it up. You know, once in a while it does. You know, every show, especially if you're talking about what five series now, well, original series, Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, and Discovery. Excuse me, six series. They very rarely jump the shark. Uh, when they do, they usually recover from it. But in, you know, in all those hundreds and hundreds of hours of Star Trek, it very rarely goes ridiculously overboard and here's a good example of pushing that limit without getting ridiculous it's scary it's a little grotesque but it's over very quickly and then we're left with the dread of what we have just seen almost like you've been asked to watch a car accident and then you sort of have to stop and contemplate it i'll have to give paul winfield a lot of credit here he plays tyrell is that as he's listening to Khan explain how these things work Without saying a word, you can see how holy shit terrified he is. He is sweating like a pig. He's breathing very heavily. He has that that look in your eye you get when you're just so terrified that you're absolutely fixated on, on whatever the threat is. Paul Winfield is not an actor who ever got a ton of screen time. He's never been an Academy Award winner. But it's amazing. I find this all the time with actors who play bit parts, you know, the, the ones who quite often take their craft the most seriously because they don't have the star power. So they have to focus purely on skill. And this is where I wish this was a visual podcast so I could show you the clip of of Captain Terrell and Paul Winfield just freaking out over what Khan is so casually saying with a smile on his face. Winfield does a great job. And Walter Koenig as well. Uh, we see a close-up of him. His eyes are wide and he's soaked with sweat. And, you know, he realizes, holy shit, this is what Khan's going to do to us. And, of course, immediately we come back to you know, Kirk aboard his shuttle on his way to visit the Enterprise. He's got his reading glasses on. He's reading the book that was given to him by Spock. And they actually kind of cheat here. They use the scene from Star Trek The Motion Picture where uh, Commander Scott, uh, Scotty gives Admiral Kirk a tour. His, his Actually, his first tour of the outside of the refit Enterprise uh, 
this is obviously it's much faster. It's not as grandiose, but they use the same scene. They use the same, uh, you know, they, they use the same film footage. And you know, considering the cost of this film and how busy it is with space battles, I can understand Nicholas Meyer wanting to cut a few corners where he could, not in a in a shoddy way, uh, but you know, let's save a few bucks. You know, so Kirk comes aboard and he meets uh, Commander Scott, who, of course, is still the chief engineer of the Enterprise. And I love that this sort of this original series humor uh, between the two of them. I, I, you know, this is a genuinely funny film at times. Uh, it's not laugh out funny. I, uh, but as I'm saying this, I get this. You know, having listened to this joke, I got this huge smile on my face. I, I really get a kick out of it. Mr. Scott, you old space talk. You're well. I had a wee bout, sir, but uh, Dr. McCoy pulled me through. Wee bout of what? Surely that oh. was. You know, one of the reasons that I'm a Trekkie is that the series never takes itself too desperately seriously. It recognizes that there's humor in life. The the sort of the grim the grimness of the uh, of many science of many science fiction films today, you know the DC universe, those garbage movies, and and in many ways the the ridiculous intensity. Let's dial it up to eleven. Garbage of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films. They forget that people have fun. People need humor in their lives. People, especially people who've known each other for very long periods of time, who live with each other, they get into sort of a routine. You know, the one thing I'll say. And I guess this is a good way to connect it to Ramey and I. When I decided to do this podcast, I, I had joked on Facebook, you know, said I've, I could do this podcast. I've got so many 80s movies. And Ramey chimed in. And, you know, Ramey and I had not been in the same room in probably 15 years. We'd only had a handful of conversations over Facebook. And yet he walked it. He walked through my door. We talked for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And we sat down. And, well, you've heard Taps and you've heard Commando. That was the first time, that, that day was the first day we'd been in the same room together in, again, 15 years. And immediately you, you get into this routine. And you see it here between Kirk and Scotty. I mean, obviously they see each other on and off. But at the same time, there's sort of a, a casualness to the way these, these officers, and there's a quite a bit of distance between Commander Scott and Admiral Kirk. You just can't help but, you can't help but pick up where you left off. One thing I notice is that when they do the inspection of many of the cadets and then the young officers and the engineers, they're all human. And I think this was just a budget-cutting thing. You know, people always sneer, why is it in Star Trek everyone looks so very human with, uh, you know, with various prosthetics on their face? Gene Roddenberry put that perfectly. He says, to his knowledge, everyone in the, act, you know, in the uh, actors' union in the United States is human, and so they have to go with what they have. Again, here... The Enterprise looks to be an almost entirely human crew, and that is as much about budget as anything else. Like one thing you'll notice in Star Trek Discovery, which is the current series, which by the way is magnificent, you see there are a lot of non-humans, but that's because my guess would be each episode of Star Trek Discovery has the same budget as this movie did. So they can afford more special effects, more, you know, more alien species, that sort of thing. It, it's doable. This film which is a pretty busy film in terms of sets and, and sort of model work, they have to cut corners where they can. And one of the easiest ways to do that, frankly, is to just make everyone human and just be done with it. It, it saves on uniforms. It saves on, on, on prosthetics. This is interesting. We, you know, as soon as sort of the, you know, the welcoming Kirk aboard is done, uh, Savick 
approaches Spock and speaks to him in in Vulcan. Because I, I, I guess I failed to mention, Savik is Vulcan. Though it's suggested in the novelization, she's only half Vulcan and she's half Romulan, though, you know, if it ain't on the screen, it, it, ain't, it ain't canon. That's just the way it works. But, you know, he says to her, he said, you know, he's, he's never what I expected. And, she said, and Spock says, well, what did you, what were you expecting? He said, she says, well, he's so human. And he responds, nobody's perfect, Savik. And again, a little bit of humor. That's not what you'd expect from a Vulcan to have a sense of humor. But of course, you know, Spock, it's clear he's sort of gotten over his Kolinar period. He's he's accepted that emotion is part of his life, even if he fights to control it. Spock in Star Trek II becomes a much more mature, per, much more mature person. Though, of course, a lot of that is, how will I say, delayed and there's some steps back because of what happens in Star Trek II, three, and four. But we're seeing a much more mature Spock who probably would never have made a joke back in the original series days. But he's, I think he's sort of come to, he's come to terms with his human half. You know, we get to see more jokes where Kirk inspects the engine room and takes a, uh, you know, very sort of standard thing. He takes a white cloth and runs it along a console, you know, looking for dust. And Chief Engineer Scott just sort of looks at him like, really, dude, you're going to do that? And of course, it's a joke. The very idea that, you know, the engine room would be in anything less than perfect shape is is ridiculous. You know, Scott is, you know, the miracle worker and all that. I will notice is the first time we see the engine room, and this is the the engine room in the original series was sort of this big open area, and we sort of looked into the background, and you see the uh, the dilithium reaction. In this Enterprise, on this uh, on this set, as with Star Trek The Motion Picture, we see what is very much sort of the current look to a Starfleet engineering room with the the pillar going up and down because we know that the the matter will come in from one way the antimatter will come in from the other and they meet in the middle where the dilithium crystals are and that's where the reaction is and from there it goes off to the nacelles and that's what powers the ship yeah and you didn't think you'd be getting any nerdier with me but here we are getting a, a starfleet engineering lesson but the look and the design and the feel of how a starfleet designed warp engine works was established in star trek the motion picture which is 1979 well in 2018 Starfleet vessels they're still using that look for set design uh, so Star Trek the motion picture very much defined the setup of a Starfleet vessel even more so than the original series did and, they, and they've stayed with most of it what I like here is that you know Kirk says you know you, you think you could add her up to a training cruise and Scotty says you know give the word and he says the word is given and you know, McCoy says, well, what about the rest of the inspection? He's like, later. You know, Kirk doesn't like inspections. He's very informal. He's a great captain, and he runs a tight ship. But he doesn't want to do inspections. He wants to get out there. And even if he's just going to be sort of watching as, you know, as Captain Spock takes the ship out, he just wants to get on with it. He wants to get back to being, fly- how does he put it, you know, flying around the universe with your hair on fire, I think is what McCoy refers to it as one point. It's about you flying a goddamn computer console when you want to be out there hopping galaxies. Spare me your notions of poetry, please. We all have our assigned duties. So off we go. What I really like here is they, you know, Nicholas Meyer adds a very military-like feel to the way the bridge works. This sort of ebbs and flows depending on who's directing which movie or which episode. But one thing I did notice is that in Star Trek Discovery, they go very much back to that where you hear the radio chatter in the background. There's a lot of movement going around on the bridge. It's not just the actors acting and, you know, responding to whatever the story requires them. 
this is the bridge of a ship where you know everything has to everything you know like they're running a ship and so stuff regardless of what's happening on the screen regardless of what's going on with the plot the people moving around the periphery of the bridge they have work to do and i do notice here that the smoking sign is missing so i wonder if that was intended to dress up just the the Starfleet Academy Bridge Simulator, or whether they realize, wow, this is ridiculous, let's take that down, and oh, we've already filmed the Kobayashi Maru scenes, so let's move on. Move on. I'm honestly not sure. And I'll notice here that Savik is no longer the quote-unquote the captain, because obviously the Kobayashi Maru was her test. Now she's actually at Spock's science station, and Captain Spock is in the captain's chair, which I have to say I think is just awesome. I love the captain's chair of of these movies. I if I if I had money, I would I would have this chair. I would have the captain's chair from Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three, with the uh, with the what do you call it, the armrests that sort of move in, you know, that sort of sweep out and sweep in. I would want one of these. I would buy it in a second because they're just they're very cool chairs. Now this is interesting is that obviously this is a teaching opportunity. She's and and Captain Spock is going to allow um, Savick to command the ship out of space dock. But if you notice and. You, he calls her Mr. Savick. As a kid, I never understood that. She's clearly a girl. It turns out this is a naval thing, that Mr. is Mr. is another, you know, like for officers, you can sometimes use Mr. I used to use this in the, in the Army all the time, especially with junior officers. Like we had a couple of officer cadets. Uh, one was male, one was female. I often referred to the officer cadet as Mr., and I don't remember his last name, um, I don't remember whether I referred to her as Ms., certainly not Miss or Mrs., but even our our lieutenant later, Captain Eden, it would always, it would quite often be, has anyone seen Mr. Eden? You know, it, it's, I'm not sure how this works in the U.S. military, certainly I have no idea how it works in the U.S. Navy, and I couldn't say how this would work in the Reg Force Canadian military, like the regular force the full time, but as a reservist in a in a medical unit, Mister was sometimes used, uh, but I think, you know, you, you know, not for women. But Mister is just again, it's sort of a common thing. You'd say you refer to an officer as Mister because the idea is that they're gentlemen and ladies. I guess I don't know. It's it's the interesting uh, dichotomy of a 18th century military or 18 to 19th century military way of thinking and way of speaking added into, you know, sort of put into the 20th and 21st century, and then, of course, projected onto the 23rd century of Star Trek by, you know, by writers from the 1980s. I will note that in Star Trek Voyager, which, of course, takes place in the 24th century, it is a uh, conversation that Captain Catherine Janeway has with, I believe, Ensign Harry Kim about, yes, sir, and ma'am, and she says, I was never really big on being called sir, let's just go with Captain so even in the 24th century, written in the you know the late 1990s or mid 1990s, this is still a thing using the male formal you know the, the male formal title for a female officer. So we see the Enterprise leave space dock, and I guess here's where I want to talk about the artistry of Starfleet ships. Gene Roddenberry's original instruction when he had uh, when he had his design people design the Enterprises is I wanted something that a child could draw. That's actually why the Enterprise looked the way it did. Something a child could draw. And obviously it's a ridiculous design with the engine nacelles out on these pylons that are so so very vulnerable. And, you know, the, the disc and the neck that connects the secondary hull, it's ridiculously impractical. But the Enterprise is a beautiful ship. I have a pewter 
statue of the original Enterprise, the original Constitution class from the original series. And it's gorgeous. And the refit from the movies, to me, is still the most beautiful Starship design that Paramount Studios ever came up with for the, for the series. There's just something about it that every time I look, I think, what a graceful ship. And maybe this, maybe this is because it's what I grew up on was the sort of the the movie look for the ship you know in my in my formative years and it's so it's become sort of this maybe it's become the iconic ship maybe if I'd grown up later the galaxy class enterprise you know enterprise D from next gen maybe that would be the thing but there's something about the way Starfleet ships look and the way the enterprise the the refit constitution class looks that it just I look at it and I can't help but think wow what a gorgeous ship so off they go on their training cruise and now we're back to the Genesis space station. And of course, it, you know, it's Chekhov contacting them and saying that SETI Alpha 6 has checked out. We're coming to seize the Genesis, seize the Genesis research. Again, we still don't know what Genesis is. It's clear that Chekhov is sort of almost like a zombie. He doesn't blink. He stares straight ahead. Uh, it's very clear someone off screen is whispering in his ear. Obviously, uh, doctors Marcus don't know who that is neither neither david nor carol and when she asks well on whose order are you seizing genesis there's this this brief pause where clearly Khan is whispering in his ear and says well by order of admiral kirk which obviously is designed to piss people off obviously there's no way Khan knows that there's a relationship between carol marcus and kirk but he's just trying to screw with kirk's legacy right he's obviously offended that kirk is now an admiral uh he expresses that horror you know when he when he first hears the hears the rank used, uh, and so this is him just sort of screwing with Kirk's legacy, his his reputation. It's not enough that he's going to kill Kirk; he has to kill the idea of Kirk. And of course, the minute the the transmission is over, uh, we see that in fact it's Khan's people who are in charge of Reliant. They've boarded the ship, and we'll le- we'll learn later that the most of the Reliance crew has been left behind on SETI Alpha. You think, well, how do these people who were from the 1990s, who only spent a few days in the 23rd century before they were dropped on this planet, how is it they've figured out the ship so quickly? Well, part of it is that they'd already figured out part of the part of the Enterprise when they tried to seize it uh, from Kirk and Space Seed. Part of it is these guys are genetically engineered. It's not just that they're physically stronger and and faster. They're much. They're they're very they're very intelligent. They figure things out very very quickly. If it weren't for Khan's ego and his his temper, which he's always had, I wonder whether Khan would have won. Now, you juxtapose this with Khan from Star Trek Into Darkness, this garbage J.J. Abrams movie. He's just this ridiculous two-dimensional villain who, I don't know, he's, I mean, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch is a good actor, but he was given nothing to work with. And unfortunately, working for J.J. Abrams, who I do not care for as a director or a writer or a creator at all. Um, though he did give Star Trek a beautiful visual style that stayed on with Discovery, so I'll give him that, but I think that was more his art people, but whatever. But the point is, is that his version of Khan uh, in Star Trek Into Darkness is ridiculous. Yeah, he's faster. Yeah, he's pretty smart, but he's really just like the Terminator with a little more social skills, whereas this Khan is exactly as we had seen him in Space Seed, which is how you would have expected to see him in Star Trek Into Darkness, right? Because the idea is Star Trek Into Darkness is, you know, He's not trapped on SETI Alpha 6. He's picked up and, you know, put to work for Starfleet uh, intelligence. But 
the Star Trek Into Darkness performance and characterization of Khan leaves out what Khan always was, which was this this smirking, ridiculously arrogant guy who knows he's going to win. He knows he's smarter than you and stronger than you. He knows he's faster than you. You can't beat him in a fight. You can't beat him in a match of intellects. And he takes pleasure in delivering pain on people who who screw with him. And especially after 15 years of torment on this awful planet, watching his wife die, watching 20, you know, 19 other of his, of his comrades die. He has become someone who just, he doesn't just wallow in vengeance. He's up to his eyeballs in it. And it has become, it's almost like in red dawn, there's a point where the downed pilot turns to one of the kids and says, all that hate is going to burn you up. And the kid responds, it keeps me warm. And here, that's it's very clear that is what's happened. The, the hatred and the, the desire for vengeance and the need to repair a wounded ego has made Khan uniquely calm, actually. He's just, he's angry and he's he's vengeful, but it's almost like it's all he has left and he's just embraced it. What I like is that you know, we need to go back to the Enterprise and we see a scene in, in a turbo lift uh, between Kirk and uh, Savick, and she's still bothered by the Kobayashi Maru test. And the Kobayashi Maru test is a no-win scenario. It's very much a theme of this movie. But you know, it's dealt with several other times over the course of Star Trek. And I'm not even talking about the garbage scene from the Star Trek reboot, uh, which was just... Ugh, that, re- that scene reason- is reason enough to hate those movies. But the idea that this test has bothered Lieutenant Savick so much that you know, a day or two later, it's still chewing at her. And you'd think, okay, well, it's just a writing tool. You know, it's, it's, it's the way to set up the theme of a no-win situation, which is something that Kirk has never really dealt with, and, and it will haunt him over the next two movies. But when you think about it, it's a brilliant idea for a test to essentially scare the shit out of someone who one day wants to be a captain. Well, what are you going to do when there's no way out? What are you going to do when you're going to lose your ship? And more importantly, all the souls aboard it. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle that? And it's something that in the military, you know, commanders have to deal with. You're going to lose people. You're going to lose a lot of them. These are good people. And maybe they died through no fault of your own, or maybe they did. And, and leaders have to think about that. And of course, she asks him, well, how did you deal with the test? And we know at this point he's taken it three times. What we will learn later is that he cheated. He reprogrammed the simulator so it was, so it was uh, possible to rescue the, the, the crew of the Kobayashi Maru and get out. And he was given accommodation for original thinking and sent on his way. But the whole idea is that Kirk is... Kirk has cheated death. I mean, through through all those years in in on his five year mission, he was always able to pull it out of the fire. Yes, he lost people. Of course, we have the run, long running joke of the red shirt, right? The uh, the security guy who we you know Kirk and Spock and McCoy and some unnamed extra in a red shirt beam down. We know who ain't coming home. And then maybe that's a joke, but the fact is, Kirk has always won. Kirk has always pulled it out. You know, he was described as a cadet. He described himself as being positively grim. That's from a reference to the episode start, uh, the original series episode called Shore Leave, where he talks about how he had no sense of humor and he was just this grim studying cadet. So, you know, clearly Kirk takes his career seriously. And by the time we see him as a captain, he's very cavalier. But at the same time, it's because he's highly skilled. There's a reason why he's in, he's in the captain's chair. Uh, he didn't just stumble his way through promotions into a captain's chair. That's not the way it works. He's really good at what he does, but he's never lost in a very serious way. And 
that's another theme of this movie that he's never really come up against someone he couldn't beat. And he laughs it off and you you sort of wonder he reprogrammed the simulator but did he really succeed? He's failed. He you you can't win at the Kobayashi Maru because there's no way to win. So it's a test of character. But I'm going to suggest here that even if you can't win, you don't necessarily fail as long as you act correctly in terms of procedures and evacuating the ship. And then you will, you know, you succeed if you take the time as Safik is doing to contemplate what has happened. But I would suggest that Kirk has failed the test because he's never really contemplated truly a no-win scenario. And at this point, she gets a, uh, you know, we, we learn that Kirk has received a uh, communications uh, message from Carol Marcus and you know, he points out that this is a reopening of old wounds. So we're starting to realize who maybe David is and who, who Carol Marcus is. In the very first episode of, of Star Trek with Captain Kirk, which is the second pilot entitled Where No Man Has Gone Before, he's chatting with his old friend Gary Mitchell. And this is another, you know, this is sort of one of these other instances where we learn that, you know, Kirk was a very grim, very serious cadet. And Gary Mitchell points out and said, you know, you wouldn't have had any fun if I hadn't pointed that young lab technician at you. And Hey, man, I remember you back at the academy. A stack of books with legs. The first thing I ever heard from an upperclassman was, watch out for Lieutenant Kirk. In his class, you either think or sink. <laughs> that wasn't that bad, was it? If I hadn't aimed that little blonde lab technician at you... You what? You, you planned that? Well, you wanted me to think, didn't you? <laughs> I outlined her whole campaign for her. I almost married her. So I guess we're learning this is Carol Marcus that we're talking about, that he had, you know, he got very serious with her. Because, of course, what we're going to learn is that David Marcus is Kirk's estranged son. And, you know, so she she's sort of contacted Kirk uh directly and said, like, why are you taking Genesis away? But the, the transmission is garbled and she can see him, but she can't hear him. And he, because obviously the Reliant is approaching and they've, they're jamming communications. So then we get to see an argument among the scientists and Carol Marcus says something which is clearly false. She says, Starfleet has managed to keep the peace for a hundred years. Well, we know that's not true because there was uh, a war with the Klingons that lasted a year. You can see that depicted in the first season of Star Trek Discovery. And of course, there's other conflicts with the Klingons in, in Star Trek, the original series, including the beginning of a war, which is stopped by the, uh, by the Organians. You know, but I guess mostly they're right. Like, you know, Starfleet has, because Starfleet isn't primarily a military organization, they have managed to keep things pretty peaceful, allow the, the Federation to expand. Of course, at this point, the Romulans are nowhere to be seen. Uh, the Klingons have mostly backed down. You know, things are pretty quiet. But the fact is that David Marcus doesn't believe that. He's convinced, as many scientists in the 1960s, 70s, and even into the 80s did, that the, he's being used as a pawn. We go back to, at this point, we go back to the Enterprise and we see Kirk walking down the halls. And one thing I'll notice is that they seem to have narrowed the hallways from Star Trek The Motion Picture. They've darkened it. Instead of this being this bright white and silver, uh, everything's a little, like the, the lights are lower down. I'm pretty sure that they, they, they made the hallways a little narrower. Again, this goes back to Nicholas Meyer, who I think wanted to make this, and as I recall, he had said this, that he wanted to make this feel very much like a a submarine where everything's sort of closed in because that increases tension and increases drama. 
So then, you know, Kirk walking down the halls goes to Spock's quarters. I noticed that they look very much like they did in the original series with this very cool looking mirror. I'm not sure how to describe it, but it's damn cool looking. And, you know, we see Spock meditating something he's always done. And he says, you know, I, I got to take the ship back from you. And it, it's it's an interesting dynamic to watch these two talk because, you know, Spock has no ego or at least not one that he lets out. And Kirk is afraid that he'll be seen as egotistical. After all, the last time he was on the Enterprise in Star Trek, the motion picture, he sort of forced himself into command by going over Captain Decker's head to Admiral Nagura and getting command back. And I think he's afraid he'll look like he's being too much of a he's being too aggressive. Spock, these cadets of yours, how good are they? How will they respond under real pressure? As with all living things, each according to his gifts. Of course, the ship is yours. No, that won't be necessary. Just get me to regular one. As a teacher on a training mission, I am content to command the Enterprise. If we are to go on actual duty, it is clear that the senior officer on board must assume command. It may be nothing. Garbled communications. You take the ship. Jim, you proceed from a false assumption. I am a Vulcan. I have no ego to bruise. You're about to remind me that logic alone dictates your actions. I would not remind you of that would you know so well. If I may be so bold, it was a mistake for you to accept promotion. Commanding a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else is a waste of material. I would not presume to debate you. That is wise. In any case, were I to invoke logic, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. You are my superior officer. You are also my friend. I have been and always shall be yours. Of course, here we get the, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Of course, this is a this is a foreshadowing of what will have to be decided later. But if you notice, this is the second time in the movie that someone has said, I have a professional link to you, but you're also my friend. And that is ultimately what attracts me to the original series is that these people are friends, that they have served together for so long. They are desperately loyal to each other. I think it's why I think Star Trek three is the best of the films. I would argue, maybe not from a technical standpoint, but in terms of the story that these people are so absolutely loyal, they will do anything for them for, for each other. And rank has very little to do with it. And I, I think about all the friends I have and I wonder how many of them would I do absolutely anything for? And, Maybe that's a question I'll ever have to answer. Probably not. But the fact is that here are people who will do anything for e each other. And it's hard not to find that compelling. It's hard not to watch, want to watch these people interact. Now there's this neat scene aboard the Bridge of the Reliant, which of course is, is being controlled, as the entire ship is, by Khan's men. And one of Khan's you know, right-hand man, this guy named Joaquin, sort of appeals to him and says, look, we got a ship, let's just go. But he does it by appealing to his ego. He says, you know, you know, your intellect has allowed us to survive. You have 
defeated the plans of Kirk, who wanted to exile us there. Uh, let's just go. But here is where Khan's ego gets the better of him. And it's the poetic way he says it. As I said, he is at his most menacing when he is his calmest and best spoken. You have proved your superior intellect and defeated the plans of Admiral Kirk. You do not need to defeat him again. He tasks me. He tasks me and I shall have him. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. I find this particular turn of phrase interesting. There are two possibilities. They're unable to respond. They're unwilling to respond. Because I use it a lot. And now I'm starting to realize where I get it from, that I often use this particular phrase. There are two possibilities. You cannot or you will not. And I get it from here. Watching through these movies and also having watched through The West Wing recently, a couple years ago, I start to realize that every so often I pick up a way of saying things or a particular, a particular phrase and I'm getting them from, from characters I admire. And I get a lot of them from Spock because Spock was my hero growing up which sounds weird, but I like the idea of someone who could sort of focus through the maelstrom of his own intense emotion, who always didn't always get it right, but always tried uh, because he was coming at things from a particular point of view, in his case, pure logic. And even though it had its faults, he always tried to, he always tried to adjust for that. And most of the time, his calm, rational, passionless way of approaching things, approaching things was actually the way to go. And so Spock was and has always been uh, an enormous hero of mine. And little turns of phrase like this one, they've sort of found their way into my vocabulary. And this is where finally we're going to learn what Genesis is. And I'm going to play the entire clip because it's one of the iconic clips from Star Trek, from the Star Trek movies. So you're just going to listen to the whole explanation of what Genesis is. Project Genesis, a proposal to the Federation. What exactly is Genesis? Well, put simply, Genesis is life from lifelessness. It is a process whereby molecular structure is reorganized at the subatomic level into life-generating matter of equal mass. Stage one of our experiments was conducted in the laboratory. Stage two of the series will be attempted in a lifeless underground. Stage three will involve the process on a planetary scale. It is our intention to introduce the Genesis device into a pre-selected area of a lifeless space body, a moon or other dead form. The device is delivered, instantaneously causing what we call the Genesis effect. Matter is reorganized with life-generating results. Instead of a dead moon, a living, breathing planet capable of sustaining whatever life forms we see fit to deposit on it. The reformed moon simulated here represents the merest fraction of the Genesis potential, should the Federation wish to fund these experiments to their logical conclusion. When we consider the cosmic problems of population and food supply, the usefulness of this process becomes clear. This concludes our proposal. Thank you for your attention. After they watch the, the Genesis proposal, it's interesting to watch uh, the, the reactions. Of course, Kirk knows about it, so he's, he's an admiral, so he, 
he's already come to terms with it. Spock thinks it's an interesting scientific question, but McCoy, you can see it in his eyes. He's horrified. He, he, you know, he looks at this and is like, this is almost worse than a nuclear weapon because it doesn't just uh, create something new. It utterly wipes out what was there before, wherever there is, and rebuilds it. It's like disappearing life. And that's how he views it. He views it as an, as an act of destruction, not an act of creation. And of course, their discussion, their argument is, is interrupted by the arrival of Reliant. And of course, they have no idea that Reliant is, is not under Starfleet control anymore. What I also really like about this scene is that any time we see the Reliant from now on, it's askew. It's at an angle. Uh, I mean, this is not a new film technique. If you ever watch the 1966 Batman show, anytime they show the the bad guy's lair, the camera is askew, so you're looking at things like as though your head was cocked. And so they're showing that with Reliant, that Reliant's coming at them sort of off-center, like tipped to one side, because something's wrong with it. Something's wrong with it, but not literally so. It's it's a thematic thing. It's It's a simple camera choice, but it works. What I like here is that Savick, who's just a wee little lieutenant, tries to quote regulations to Kirk. And I remember when I was uh, when I was learning to drive, when I was taking driving school, they said, you know, now that you've learned how to drive from a driving school, you're going to be with your parents tonight. You're going to say, well, you're doing this wrong and you're doing that wrong. You know, there's, there's, no, there's nothing, no one's so expert as someone who has just learned, just learned the rules. But of course, this is part of the the fact that Kirk failed the Kobayashi Maru test in a in a moral sense, he's never faced a truly no-win situation. He can't imagine anything not going his way. He can't imagine missing anything. He can't imagine his intuition failing him. And so, of course, he ignores her. What I like here is that, unlike, I guess, a modern film, this is very technical. You know, even though there's going to be a battle, there's, they say, oh, you know, we can't uh, communicate. Here's a reason why. I'm getting a voice message. They say their chambers coil is overloading their comm system. Spock. Scanning. Then coil emissions are normal. You know, immediately he looks to, you know, Kirk looks to his science officer, Spock, who's back at the science station, who looks as, no, it's normal. Like, it's, it's expert people using the tools at hand in order to solve a problem. Uh, it's not... I feel this and I know this and intuition tells me this and I'm just so awesome. The sort of crap you see in J.J. Abrams movies or even in Star Wars. Here it's very highly trained, uh, very technical people doing their job. In many ways, I often think of this as a space version of a movie that will come many years later, which we'll, we'll absolutely do on this podcast, which is The Hunt for Red October. And of course, the minute Reliant fires on Enterprise, it knows exactly where to fire at. It fires at its engine room, and the trainees panic. And you can hear, you know, uh, you can hear Scotty in the background trying to get them back to their posts. Okay, so then Reliant hits them with the photon torpedo, and it's got to be like the very worst stunt scene I've ever seen, where there's an explosion, various explosions around the ship, and one of the guys standing at the rear console is sort of quote-unquote, thrown, and then a full second later, it explodes. It's like the stuntman was new. He didn't want to get an explosion in his face. And so he sort of jumps the gun and does his, you know, thrown back by an explosion jump early. And it just drives me nuts because it's it's so poorly done. My guess is that 
They only got one or two shots of it because they did set fire to the set. Literally, they set fire to the set. And I guess Nicholas Meyer said, screw it, we're going with it. I, we can't afford to repaint all, repaint all this again and, and do it again. It's probably one of those one-time only uh, stunts and they just had to live with it. It's the nature of movie making. Of course, in this day and age, they would go in with CG and they would add more explosions to the ones they had done practically so that the guy would look like he had, in fact, been thrown by an explosion as opposed to jumping the gun early. But this is 1982, so whatever. And of course, Khan wants to talk and he says, you know, we want to talk about terms of surrender. And, and, and Kirk says, OK, put him on while we still have time. Obviously, he doesn't plan to surrender. And then he sees Khan and you can you can give Shatner grief for overacting all you want. But I never thought he overacted that badly. But here he's just acting really well. That he sees Khan, you know, 15 years older, grizzled, wearing tatters of clothing, standing triumphantly on the bridge. And Kirk looks like he's seen a ghost that clearly the mistake he made of setting these guys down on SETI Alpha 5 to build a colony of their own was the wrong decision that he should have turned them over to, you know, Starfleet security for imprisonment. And this is like his cavalier attitude, his arrogance, uh, his ego come back to haunt him. And he realizes, holy shit. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great little scene. On screen, sir. You still remember, Admiral. I cannot help but be touched. I, of course, remember you. It's interesting, as they're sort of conversing, trying to find the prefix code for uh, Reliance Shield, it's sort of like a, an override code, uh, he pulls out his glasses and Savick looks at him and he sort of looks around at all these different cadets and they're seeing he wears glasses. He says, damn. And there's this brief moment. I don't think the dam is, oh my God, they see I have glasses. It's just, I think it's a sort of recognition that, holy shit, I blew it. And these glasses and that they communicate his age, they're part of that. The, oh man, I'm old and I've lost my touch and I'm arrogant and my past has come back to haunt me. And here they are looking at me and it's all symbolized by me putting on reading glasses. And I love they communicate at this point where he drops the shield. He's like, where's the override? Time's up. Here it comes. Now, Mr. Spock. Sir, our shields are dropping. Raise them. I can't. Where's the override? The override. Fire. He looks down at this panel and it's just covered with buttons. And this is where you realize that he may be super smart and he may have got this ship up and running, but he hasn't learned everything yet. His arrogance, his intelligence has brought him up short. Uh, and it's actually one of the things that will also be a theme in this film is that as smart as Khan is and as, uh, as tactically brilliant as he is, he hasn't caught up to the 23rd century yet. And it's things like the prefix code and later the three-dimensionality of space combat. That's where it all comes into play. I should mention, by the way, that for those of you who like the idea of starship, like Star Trek starship combat, I highly, highly recommend the free-to-play online game Star Trek Online, which takes place in the 25th century. 
I think it's wonderful. It, it uses most of the cast from the various shows. They just released a, an expansion pack with all the DS9 cast, or most of them anyway. But the starship combat is fantastic, and it's got the same sort of feel that you see in Star Trek 2 and 3, and in all the very best Starfleet battles that you see throughout the series, which is that it's not about brute force, it's about using the tools and all these different ways of screwing with the enemy ship and all the different types of energies you can direct at them and all the technical the technical savvy of it, especially if you choose a science class officer. You know, it's free. Go, go just search for Star Trek online. It doesn't have the intensity of a Star Trek movie battle, but if you want to experience Starfleet, you know, Star Trek type combat, do that. Do do play that game and hey, it's free. So And it's neat that Joaquin has to really pretty much yell at Khan to get him with to withdraw because the the, the shots that Reliance takes are, are are pretty serious. And he's got this stunned look like he doesn't understand why has my ego and intellect uh, my brilliance, how come it has failed me? I don't understand. And Joaquin, is, look, Joaquin has to say, look, the Enterprise is damaged. She's not going anywhere. We have to withdraw. Our warp drive is offline. Our torpedo tubes are damaged. You know, and 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 at this point, Joaquin and the rest of the crew have, sitting, have pretty much sort of taken it upon themselves to step in and say, okay, get the Reliant out of range. While Khan is still trying to understand why his brilliance doesn't work there's also you start to realize what uh great cinematography uh comes out of this film there's a great scene where the you know where the reliant is trying to escape the enterprise and it flies right overhead and it's it's filmed as though they had the cameraman standing on the outside like standing on the hall the saucer section just aft of the bridge of the enterprise and you see the reliant comes swooping overhead it's a beautiful piece of model work remember these are all models there's no cg here and you know despite the fact that you've seen some incredible battle scenes in various star trek iterations including where they started to go fully digital which was the later season the latter seasons of star trek deep space nine the best battle between two ships in anything star trek is in star trek 2 it's the reliant versus the enterprise it, it looks the best the ships are seem the most realistic they you know you they look the most tangible it's filmed the best and this is where you realize that special effects are only so good you know Ramey had talked about how special effects are so impressive these days but when you look back to star superman 2 it it, it, it works just because it's it's well done, it's well filmed. And I think what he was getting at, and what I'm getting at, is that CG is only as good as the person wielding it, or the you know, the teams of artists wielding it. This is why so much CG looks bad, and then you look at some movies like Pixar movies are a good example, or Star Trek Discovery always looks so good, is that it's all about the camera work and angles and color choices. It's very much about the artistic choices that are made, which is why I think Star Wars often looks as good as it does, because it's not just that they, you know, Industrial Lights and Magic has good model work uh, and later CG. It's that they know how to wield that. You know, the next scene we see, you know, after the sort of reliant buggers off is we get to see, uh, you know, Kirk says, well, let's go see how bad the damage is. And the and probably a little over dramatic moment, the, the turbo lift opens and there is Scotty holding 
one of the cadets who we'd met earlier who was super keen, uh, who we'll actually learn is his nephew, is Scotty's nephew. And then we go to we go to sick bay where there are so many wounded people. They're lying on the floor. They're burned horribly. It's it's been pretty bad, especially for the people in engineering. And we could see you know some are dying, and it's it's pretty bad. Like the damage has been pretty pretty serious. And I don't think there's any other time in in Star Trek over its whole run where we've seen casualties shown in this way, because. Well, okay, maybe in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek where we see guys get like sucked out of holes, but that's sort of quick dead, move on to the next guy. Here, we linger on the pain and the damage, which I think is important because, especially for Kirk, who has been so cavalier, even in the loss of his men throughout his five-year mission, here he is moving among the wounded and surveying the damage, the, the butcher's bill, so to speak. Kirk goes into a sort of side, sort of an operatory where uh, Scotty's nephew is lying and Scotty's nephew grabs him. Now, the thing with these uniforms is that they're they're sort of burgundy or maroon, but there's sort of a panel that opens up on the over the chest and exposes sort of a white panel. It's hard to describe, but I mean, you presumably you've seen this film, or at least you can Google it. And it's got this now, you know, because of the way this this cadet has grabbed Kirk, he's got blood on his uniform. And again, there's some symbolism there. It's not Kirk's blood. It's it's the blood of a young cadet. And it's on Kirk's hands, or, you know, in this case, on his uniform, where you're going to see it for the rest of the show. Okay, now sort of looking on the, now they've approached regular one, and I'm, they're looking at the, we're seeing sort of one of the laboratory levels, and I'm noticing a piece of equipment, which is this silly thing with moving lights on it. And a lot of this equipment, clearly, they didn't throw out when they were done the movie, because a lot of it appears in various episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Of course, this was made in 82, long before it occurred to them to make a new Star Trek show. Star Trek The Next Generation, I think, premiered in, I want to say, 87, 87 or 88. So, And I don't think it occurred to anyone that Star Trek was, was becoming popular enough until Star Trek 2 and 3 and 4 had made a lot of money. And, you know, I think they just said, you know what, we, we're clearly going to make more movies of these. Let's hold on to this, this equipment, these consoles and all this futuristic gadgetry and a lot of it just over the you know course of 15 years of making Star Trek movies and Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And I think even into Enterprise, they just said, let's hold on to this stuff. Let's, you know, it becomes sort of a, its own props department. It's, it's kind of neat. Oh, geez, I just noticed they add, a, they add the blood print in, in, in a following scene. Remember, there's the blood print of the dead cadet. They moved it. Obviously, they had changed his uniform and. Someone in continuity didn't do a good job of making sure the bloody handprint was in the same place. That's annoying. Like things like that. That's that's a lack of attention to detail, and that is the fault of the continuity person, who their job is to run around the set. Back in the day, it was with a Polaroid camera. I imagine these days it's just with a digital camera, and they take photos of everything to make sure that if it was set, if a prop was set down on a on a table, that in the next time they shot a scene involving that table, that it was still there. You know, if if a you know, if a costume is torn in a certain place, it's torn in the in the same place next time, because of course every actor will have multiple multiple copies of every piece of costume they have. But you can't stop. You know, if something tears, you can't. You know, accidentally, you can't stop production while the it's sent to to be sewn up. You have to have another version, and also, you know, they sweat in them, and they may have to change over the course of a day and so forth. So this is just 
a continuity error and it's a clumsy error I had never noticed before. Man, that's annoying. You know, so they decide to beam down to the station and there's, even in the midst of the seriousness, there is the comedy of the sort of the the triumvirate of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. That's an old Roman term. Sorry, <laughs> my training. Uh, where they're injecting a little bit of humor even into a serious situation. Obviously, it's not funny to them in the way that you know, the, the shore leave joke with, with Scotty was or any of the others, but it's still just sort of a, this movie knows when to give the audience a, an opportunity to smirk, if not outright smile, just to relieve the tension a little bit, because an overly intense movie that never, ever backs down, uh, I'll use an example, uh, Black Hawk Down, which by the way is an excellent film, there comes a point where intensity will do one of two things, it'll either numb you, or you get up and walk away and say, I can't take this anymore, I, I'm done. And you hit stop or you walk out of the theater or whatever. And so the, the moments that you have to sort of stop and, huh, that's cute, you smile, they they help quite a bit. And, it, and, and this scene certainly does that here. And this is where we get to see these cool field jackets that the Starfleet people have. And I always thought they were like the coolest jackets ever. Uh, apparently there's a guy or a girl, someone on uh, Etsy who makes these things. And they're using the, the actual Param- uh, Paramount Studios authorized pattern. And I keep thinking, I'm going to buy one of these things and wear it. And I realize they're god awful. But one of these days I'm going to get the courage to order this jacket. And I'm going to wear it. As Kirk and McCoy and Savick search the station again really excellent cinematography we see them you know the camera moving independently like there's one scene where the camera is panning left to right and we come into view of a corridor and at the other end kirk is sort of looking and he walks on you know he sort of carries on his way out of camera view and we you know looking at the camera we keep moving to the right where we see a video screen of uhura still trying to contact the station the music and the cinematography, they really give you this sense of dread. Just very well filmed. There is a jump scare. I'm fairly certain that's the first in Star Trek history where McCoy spots a rat. And it actually leads to him, you know, not looking where he's going and walking into a, a body of one of the scientists who was hung upside down. It's it's interesting that Nicholas Meyer chose a horror trope in this film. And in this particular instance, it works well. you know they, they come across all these bodies these people hung upside down and then they go to a uh, I guess it's a storage locker and they find that in there Captain Terrell and Commander Chekhov have been stuffed unceremoniously you know and we start to get a, a sense of just how brutal Khan can be when he's angry you know he he tortured these people for the information where is Genesis he couldn't find it he slit their throats that's a particularly brutal and personal act and so we start to realize that Khan, yeah, like I said, he's at his most terrifying when he is quiet or he's rather when he is calm and well-spoken. But clearly he be, he can be more dangerous than that. And that's when he, he loses his cool and he starts taking lives. And this is interesting. Uh, you know, at some point Kirk goes 
starts talking to Spock again, and there's this exchange. Kirk to Enterprise. Spock here. Hey, Captain Spock, damage report. Admiral, if we go by the book, like Lieutenant Samick, hours could seem like days. I read you, Captain. Let's have it. The situation is grave, Admiral. We won't have main power for six days. Auxiliary power has temporarily failed. Restoration may be possible in two days. By the book, Admiral. Now, clearly this is playing on Khan's inexperience of the 20th, 23rd century. It's, it's, it's playing on the fact that his ego and his anger and his, his temper tantrum have gotten the better of him because it's a pretty obvious code. So they beam down to the, you know, to the inside of the moon, where sort of stage two of the experiment, doing it in under, you know, doing the, you, applying the Genesis effect in a underground cavern has been, has taken place. This is where we learn that some of the science staff have escaped there, and so they beam down and they spot the Genesis torpedo. Uh, it's the first time we've seen it, and it's you know a little taller than a man. It looks like it's about, I don't know, six and a half feet tall, and you know at this point we realize this is effectively a nuclear bomb, and you know there it is. And Dr. Marcus, you know, David Marcus jumps Kirk and gets the shit beat out of him because, you know, he's just a scientist. And I like that, that, you know, as aggressive as David is, he is a scientist. He's not a fighter. And, of course, once that's all resolved, we realize that Terrell and Chekhov, who follow them down to the planet, they really, they really still are under Khan's control because they pull phasers. They arrange for the torpedo to be beamed up to the Reliant because Khan has been waiting a scientist who beamed down with the, with both Dr. Marcus and her son, uh, he is killed. I'm afraid it's even harder than you think, Doctor. Please, don't move. Check out. I... Sorry, I don't know. Your Excellency, have you been listening? I have indeed, Captain. Terrell tries to fight the influence of the eel. He winds up committing suicide. It's kind of grotesque. Certainly it sounds grotesque. Chekhov, you know, he sort of collapses and we realize he'll be fine soon. We get to see the the eel crawl out of his ear because now it's more fully formed and he gets, you know, destroyed by phaser. But it's pretty grotesque and you start to wonder, my God, what did Khan's people go through? This is what has twisted him. And when you see the effects these eels have on Terrell and Chekhov, you start to understand why he's so angry. And then, of course, Terrell, who was ordered to kill Kirk, he's dead now. And, and, and Chekhov's in the clear. And we have what is very possibly the most famous Kirk exchange in all of, in, in all of Star Trek. Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. A 
lot of people uh, sort of snicker at the scene because it's so it's so very melodramatic, and and that's true. It is. I mean, this is not surprising from uh, Shatner, whose training was as much Shakespearean as anything else. It's the height of, of of rage for a man who is just now realizing that he's back in the Kobayashi Maru. He is now suddenly facing the no win, and. Khan has gotten what he wants. 15 years of anger has culminated in this. And it's easy to snicker and be cynical about scenes like this, but I find if you just let it wash over you, you accept the emotions for what they are, you start to realize that this is actually a very powerful scene between two characters, you know, who have never found a more worthy adversary than in each other. One of the more interesting little monologues he has is when Carol Marcus asks him what he's thinking, and he, he sort of thinks that he's, you know, of course, he's met his son David for the first time now. And he says, you know, my life that could have been, that wasn't. You know, it's sort of, it's added to the problems that he's gotten old, he's not happy with where he is, he, he regrets surrendering his command, or, you know, accepting, prom- he regrets accepting promotion, which pushes him out of the captain's chair. And all of his arrogance from his youth has come back to haunt him. And on top of this, he's presented with the possibility of a life of a family man that is past now. The possibility of that is gone. And there's a quick cut back to Reliant, where we learn from Joaquin that impulse power has been restored. And Khan thinks, you know, more than a match for poor Enterprise, because he's heard that it's going to take days to restore that kind of functionality to the Enterprise. And then we go right back to the Genesis cave. Carol Marcus is leading Kirk down this hallway into this cave. And it's this amazing lush environment. And sort of around the corner from this this cave, sort of around the corner, there's what looks like a sun. Obviously, it's not a sun. It's inside a moon. Uh, so it's you know, some source of heat and light. But it's, it's just this beautiful, this beautiful scene. And the, the corridor leads out just onto sort of an outcropping of rock, which is convenient, and they can build a small set and use matte paintings for the rest. In the meantime, Reliant has returned to Regula 1, which of course is in orbit around Regulus, and they find that the Enterprise is not there. And then we're back in the cave, and this is where we learn the truth about uh, the Kobayashi Maru test, because now, you know, Savick has a little more time to think about it. She's still in the midst of all this crisis. She's still concerned about it, maybe because she sees this situation as a Kobayashi Maru scenario and this is where he admits he cheated on the test this does not endear him to david who says flat out he cheated sir may i ask you a question what's on your mind lieutenant the kobayashi maru sir are you asking me if we're playing out that scenario now on the test sir will you tell me what you did i would really like to know lieutenant you are looking at the only starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario how I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Character Spock, it's two hours. Are you ready? Right on schedule, Admiral. But then he says very arrogantly, I don't believe in the no-win scenario. He flips open his communicator and there is Spock. Because we learned that when he said, if we go by the book, hours will seem like days. That's his way of saying, if we go by the book and speak in code, hours will seem like days when in fact, I'll say two days, but I mean two hours. And the Enterprise is ready to go. It's a tiny, 
it's not much of a code, but it's one of those things that they're taking advantage of the fact that Khan's arrogance outstrips his knowledge. What I like is that she points out, you know, Savick looks at Spock and says, you lied. You lied. I exaggerated. Hours instead of days. Now we have minutes instead of hours. And it's a thing that, you know, Vulcans don't lie. And this is brought forth several times over the series of films following this, that Spock will lie. Spock will do un-Vulcan things because he has, in fact, come to terms with who he is as a as a person. That he is half Vulcan and he is half human and he's in Starfleet and he has a tendency to run into trouble. Uh, the closer to Kirk he is, the worse things tend to be for this poor guy. And so he's learned to be flexible. So this is where you know Kirk very purposely takes them into the Motara Nebula knowing full well that the nebula with its gases and its electrical storms will wreak havoc with their sensors and they won't be able to lock on. And, and of course, neither will Reliant. And again, this isn't this highly kinetic, uh, a blast a second battle. This is a battle of wits where the skill of the people controlling the ship and those commanding it and the same on Reliant is what will determine the battle. It's very tense. It's very submarine-like. Uh, it is what makes it such an excellent battle. And we get this great montage of the Enterprise becoming battle-ready. And again, this is the sort of the military feel that Nicholas Meyer has brought to it, that we see all the crew members running around and preparing the torpedo bays for launch and generally preparing the ship is now they're on red alert, watching all these officers and crewmen preparing. And you really get the sense that this is a large ship with a large amount of people. It isn't just the people on the bridge. This is the full ship. And that's something that the original series did. And actually, the motion picture did pretty well, too. You get the impression this is a ship. I think the reason that you get that authentic feel in Star Trek that you never do in Star Wars is because the people who wrote Star Trek, many of them, including Gene Roddenberry, were World War II and Korea vets. Many who'd been in the Navy. Uh, in Roddenberry's case, he was a, a bomber pilot. But, uh, or a pilot? Yeah, he was a bomber pilot. That's right. Uh, because he was later a he was later a commercial airline pilot. But these are people who understood how the military worked, and so they were able to integrate that, and more to the point, show it, as opposed to Star Wars, which was made by people who never served in the military, who were not interested in showing a military operation. They were interested in creating fantasy. Uh, and not to say Star Wars is a bad film. It's a wonderful film. They all are. But it doesn't have that pedigree of military experience that the writers of Star Trek brought to the show. Another aspect of this battle that I really like is that these ships move slowly. They're like battleships. They don't zip around like the Millennium Falcon and an X-Wing. They, you know, they take time to turn. They're slightly, they take time to move. They're like battleships. They move deliberately. They, they take time to turn. They don't stop on a dime. And so you get the impression that these are, again, it's that feeling of the submarine or the battleships where they have to maneuver into position. And it creates more tension than super fast and whipping around each other. It's, I think it. I think the slowness is to the benefit of this battle. And when you see some of the huge battles in Deep Space Nine between the Federation, Klingon, Romulan fleet, and the Dominion, Cardassian fleet, which is much faster and, and the ships move much more maneuverable, uh, I think this one this looks better. Of course, you're talking you know seventy years, eighty years later in terms of the timeline, but still the slow moving nature of this battle adds to the artistic value of it you know, and the tension. What I like is that uh, Joaquin, without waiting for 
Khan's command slows down. And he says, why are we slowing? He says, well, we can't go in there. We won't have shields. And, you know, Khan sort of sits back in his seat like, well, okay, I guess so. Like, he's not happy, but apparently he's learned to accept advice from Joaquin. So then Kirk gets on the horn and taunts him. And that's the end of that. <laughs> into the into the, the nebula they go, because the one thing uh, more powerful than Khan's intellect is his ego. This is where, he, you know, Khan realizes, holy crap, Kirk got off the planet. And once we're in the, once we're in the nebula, you start to get a sense for... Khan's lack of understanding of how starship combat works because we see the Enterprise and well below her is the Reliant because all Kirk's had to do is increase his, I guess you could say, altitude in in relation to Reliant. Obviously, there's no up or down in space, but he's well above the Reliant because, of course, Khan only thinks in two dimensions because, you know, he grew up in an era where there was naval combat and there was air combat, but that was it. Uh, he certainly has never conducted a space battle other than the previous one. And, you know, the, the, the Mutara Nebula itself, it's very cloudy. There's a ton of uh, electrical discharges. They do a very good job with very little in the way of advanced special effects. This is all done by ILM, by the way. They still managed to create the idea that these two these two spacecraft are moving through this this miasma and they can't get around it and they can't get through it and they can't find each other and it's two people fighting in the dark you know and the battle sort of moves on they take shots at each other uh bullships take damage most of reliance crew is killed the engine room on the enterprise is flooded with radiation uh, scotty is down mccoy is hurrying to to help you know things have in one exchange this battle has gone from this sort of quiet, tense cat and mouse to they've essentially stabbed each other and they're both bleeding heavily. So of course the you know Enterprise is able to maneuver behind the Reliant and, and fire torpedoes and you know, essentially destroy the Reliant, shear off one of its its nacelles, torch the engine room. At this point, he's won the battle. But of course Khan has something up his sleeve. So with the ship destroyed, Khan, you know, bloodied and only one arm functioning and one leg functioning decides he's not going to let Kirk go. So he chooses to detonate the Genesis torpedo, uh, which creates this race against time. Can they get the warp drive operational fast enough for the Enterprise to escape before the torpedo goes down? And of course they do, but it's just sort of this perfect end for Khan that in the end, it's not about how genius he is and he doesn't at all care about his people or his ambitions it's all about for him it's become about killing kirk and that's really what it's been the entire series like that's all he cares or the entire the entire movie uh that's all he cares about is can he kill kirk you know the enterprise starts to limp away but because the dilithium crystal chamber has been damaged in the battle and because the radiation has flooded the engine room no one has fixed it so Spock goes down and he realigns it in this immense act of sacrifice. And it is not until warp engines get back online because of what Spock has done that they're able to warp and get the hell out of there. It's a very tense scene, um, of course, with Scotty and, and McCoy screaming at Spock to get out, you know, get out of there, get out of there. And he does it. They replicated this scene in Star Trek Into Darkness in sort of the reverse, where it's Kirk that surrenders his life. And it, I, I think it's a mockery of one of the most powerful scenes in all of Star Trek, which is Spock's sacrifice and death scene. And they reversed it for, 
you know, Star Trek Into Darkness. And it's the perfect example of why I don't like J.J. Abrams. He doesn't know how to create. He only knows how to imitate. And here he thought he would be, I guess, creative and edgy by uh, reversing it instead of uh, Spock sacrificing his life. It's Kirk who does. I found it a grotesque mockery of a powerful scene. Um, and of course, the minute that, you know, the Enterprise is safe, McCoy gets on the on, on the con says, you know, Jim, you got to get down here. And there's this incredible this incredible death scene between, you know, with, with Spock dying and, and and he can barely speak and you can see he's covered in his own blood, not grotesquely so, but you can see it's it's all come to the surface under the skin. His screen is mottled green because of course Vulcans have green blood. Um, it's you know and 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 Kirk just. You know, can't touch him because he's on the other side of glass because, you know, um, Spock's in the chamber. And it's this beautiful scene. And I considered whether or not to include the clip. Uh, I haven't edited it at this point, but I've decided, you know, just talking with you here, I've decided I'm not going to include the clip. I don't want to cheapen the scene by throwing it as a clip on the show. I encourage you to watch the film so that its full impact uh, can make itself known to you but the scene is very impressive because up until now and i I mentioned this earlier it's the friendship that these characters have their their undying loyalty to each other that is one of the main draws to star trek to me it's certainly the main draw to the original series you know the kirk and spock and mccoy and all these characters it's their their undying loyalty and love for each other and watching kirk and spock part ways like this was devastating. Now, my understanding is that this was at Nimoy's insistence. Nimoy had not wanted to come back to Star Trek. He had a kind of a rocky relationship with it. And so when Star Trek Phase 2 was planned, the series, uh, everyone agreed to come back except for Nimoy. Uh, Of course, Phase 2 went away. Uh, He accepted Star Trek, you know, Nimoy accepted going into Star Trek, the motion picture, because it was just a movie, whatever. Uh, But for Star Trek 2, the condition was he had to kill off the character. And, and so that was, you know, I think Nicholas Meyer and Harv Bennett and Jack Sowards sort of looked at that and said, you know what, we can make that work. And it does. The impact of this film is so much about, in Kirk's true Kobayashi Maru test, even though he's victorious, he loses that, which is most important to him. It's not his ego. It's not his, even his ship. It's, it's his best friend. It's Spock. And Star Trek Three, which will, will be the next episode that, in, in this solo series is very much him coming to terms with, with that. What happens when you lose everything? What happens when that, which you value most chooses to depart, not out of malice, but out of necessity. Now, what I failed to mention is throughout this entire battle, once they've essentially, re- once they beam up from the regular Genesis cave is that David has been, David Marcus has been on the bridge almost this entire time, just watching. And so despite the fact that he's not impressed with Kirk, yeah, he realizes he's not the bad guy anymore, but you know, he's a cheater and he's very arrogant and all this sorts of, all this sort of thing. Despite all of that, he is now watching Kirk at his best. And you can see, even though he, you know, Merritt Buttrick says nothing, he just sort of stands behind Kirk with his arms crossed. You can see him gaining respect for his father and to see him sacrifice his best friend clearly has an impact on Dr. Marcus, on, on David. And, you know, in the end, when he speaks to him, when he speaks to Kirk in his cabin after his beautiful funeral for, for, for Spock, 
it's clear he you know he expresses his respect and his love for Kirk. He realizes that Kirk is not just a, not just a man. He's not just you know with all of his faults. He's not you know he's not uh, uh, he's not the villain that he he imagined Kirk to be. He's not the sort of the quote unquote bad guy that he imagined an absent father to be. He, he's you know Kirk is a man who is burdened with with command. He's burdened with life and death choices he has to make. And David has seen him conduct himself admirably. And it's clear there's a lot of respect in sort of a coming together of father and son. At the very end of the movie, there was an interesting choice to show uh, Spock, who is buried at sea, so to speak. He's put in a torpedo tube, not with explosives, obviously. He's put in an empty torpedo tube and launched into the atmosphere of Genesis, where presumably they expect it would burn up. Again, a burial at sea. But we see that his burial tube has soft landed on Genesis. And the idea was Nicholas Meyer wanted to open the possibility of bringing Spock back in Star Trek three. So yes, he, he honored Nimoy's request to kill off Spock, but he gave him a way out. And had they decided to move on with Star Trek three without focusing on Spock, this would have been just sort of a, a beautiful end to Spock to see him on this beautiful new Genesis planet. And it was beautifully filmed uh, with the, palm trees and the blowing grass and the the skies and it ended quite well with space the final frontier these are the continuing voyages of the starship enterprise her ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life forms and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone before. So all said and done, you know, does it hold up? Absolutely it does. The special effects, 99% of them hold up very well. I still think this is the best filmed space battle Star Trek has ever done. I would argue it's the best filmed space battle I've seen in cinema. Um, to me, what stands out now um, is actually very much what stood out before, because I forgot to mention that at the beginning of the episode, and that is the relationships among the crew, uh, how they're doing this for each other, and how it all comes down to how they view each other. Even with Khan, his relationship to Kirk is one of hatred, and that's you know, that's what drives him. And Kirk's relationship to his family, his crew, his ship, that is what drives him. And, you know, when David is swept under the, up into this, he starts to realize, he starts to understand that it's about family. Uh, the music absolutely stands out. I mentioned that at the very beginning. It's, I, again, I think this is among the best music ever offered in a, uh, a Star Trek film. Uh, the only ones I would think would come close would be the Inner Light Suite, which is from the arguably one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever called The Inner Light, which is a next-gen episode. Look up The Inner Light Suite. You can look it up on YouTube. It's beautiful. Or the the opening credit music for Star Trek First Contact, which is the second next-gen movie. They are they stand at the top along with this musical score. The Star Trek II, three musical score is very, very similar. Uh, and it just, it really, it, it, it punctuates the film in a way my, in the way I had not uh, I don't think I'd ever really considered it before watching it for this this podcast. So it does hold up. 
I have to give it four out of four stars. There's just no way around it. For me, this is this isn't a movie so much as it's it's a definitive bedrock of who I am. It's it's a pillar of my personality. These characters, their philosophy, their dedication to each other. Um, being a Trekkie is who I am. And while the show may, you know, sort of brought me there, it is this movie and Star Trek three and four that kind of solidified it because that's the nature of the Star Trek films is that they have to sort of, sort of break down and condense, you know, 79 hours worth of Star Trek show into a two hour movie that expresses the same sentiments and gives us the same sort of thrilling story and all of that sort of thing. And I think Star Trek two really does that. I'm not going to come to any great conclusions about this film and the way the stories are told because we still have this is just the opening act we still have star trek 3 the search for spock which i'll do next and then star trek 4 the voyage home and i think i'm going to spend you know 15 minutes at the end of the star trek 4 podcast really summing it all up but for now this is star trek 2 i hope you enjoyed it and i'll see you next week for star trek 3